So, Scott, it's good to see you again. Good to see you. Uh, you're you're asking about suttas, and um, uh, hang on for a little bit, and we'll talk about which suttas by the numbers, etc., are uh, and name would be valuable. But before we do that, um, it's important to note that um, the way that the suttas are translated into English is problematic. I think that you've heard me talk about that. Right. And, and the problem comes basically from people who have only one of three skills that are needed. And that is that they have the skill of their own native language, but they don't have the skill of Pali. And in fact, that was the only first reason to translate out of the Pali into English was because nobody knew what the sutras were, were saying. And that the problem also was is that uh, the original scholars um, they they use their knowledge of Indo-European language and things like that, that they did not, um, let us say, readily and fully uh, go for a, um, a literature list of all of the suttas that had already been translated into languages that were still alive. In other words, they did not use Sinhalese. They did not use the Burmese. They did not use the Thai. They did not use the Vietnamese. They used a little of the Chinese, but only a little bit. That mostly it was uh, using Sanskrit and what they could get. And so uh, they did not know the language. Um, the example that I always use is imagine that the CIA had stolen some documents from Germany on nuclear uh, uh, whatever back in World War II because the Germans were really into that sort of stuff. Would the CIA then take uh, the stolen documents that they had that were in German, technical, highly mathematical, and give that literature to a, a class of uh, high school German students? The answer is no. The first thing that they would do is want to get people who were physicists, who really understood as best we could up to that point, nuclear physics. And they would also need to speak German. Okay, so those two things are missing. The Pali language itself was missing from the, uh, the, the people who were doing the translations. But the worst was that they didn't know the Dhamma. Right. Yeah. That they, they took all of this from, um, let us say, the lens of Christianity. That's why there are so many, obviously, Christian words in the, uh, the translations of the Pali. The like top of the list, yeah, the top of the list is dukkha is translated as suffering. Right, okay. Okay, dukkha does not mean suffering at all. What it means is dissatisfaction. Okay, now, dissatisfaction can be suffering, and certainly suffering is dissatisfaction, but there's a degree different because 
Suffering is something that you cannot put up with. You've got to do something about it. Okay, so if you're burned, you've got to bandage the wounds. If you're really sick, you've got to go to the hospital, et cetera, like that. You've got to do something about it. With dissatisfaction, we go around. In fact, um, uh, Henry David Thoreau, uh, in his book on Walden, uh, coined the phrase of living our lives in quiet desperation. Right. Okay. Now, what makes desperation noisy is money. Right. Right. That if you've got enough money, then you can be noisy in your desperation, and people who don't have money are just quietly desperate, but they don't do anything about it. Um, and it's also true that when people do have a really, really big, heavy-duty, let's call it suffering, that may be what we could refer to as dark night of the soul or hitting rock bottom. And it is true then that if somebody does hit rock bottom, then that means that now they're suffering and they've got to do something. This happens often with alcoholics, okay? There is also uh, in the Burmese method that's uh, referred to as Mahasi, though Mahasi himself didn't teach it this way, but the modern Western version of Mahasi um, used the 16 stages of insight and that after the person begins to see their mind, in other words, once they start uh, sati and begin to see what the mind is doing, but they're not practicing correctly, and so they leave that. What happens is, is they get a really, really good close look at how badly messed up their mind is without doing anything about it. And that's what leads to them the fearfulness, misery, disgust, despair, and a strong clinging to get out. So that level of despair then is referred to by some people as the dark night of the soul. But a dark night of the soul is actually different than that. That's something I'll give you a little bit about now. And that is the dark night of the soul is when the Christian mystic does not get the response that he expects from his prayer. In other words, um, and in fact, a good example would be Mother Teresa, who in her memoirs later after she died, her, her memoirs were posted and she was saying, what the hell's going on? I talk to Jesus every day and I see all of these other um, monks and nuns of Christianity talking to God every day and they talk back and he talks back to them. But Jesus never talks to me, okay? And uh, where that goes is, is that Christianity is always taught that you need Jesus. You can't do it on your own. And if Jesus then does not come when he's called, that means that they've got no out. They really are in a dark night of the soul. Okay, so misery, disgust and despair over what's going on here in your own mind is not really that kind of a dark night of the soul. There's another quality to it, and that is that um, in Christianity, the, the major old teacher, 
may also be in his dark night of the soul and he can't help you when you've got your own dark night of the soul because the only way that both of you are going to come out of your own personal dark nights of the soul is by abandoning christianity uh, right and so it's not quite the same as the dark night of the soul but there is uh the knowledge of misery disgust despair and the knowledge that what we're doing now doesn't work yeah and only then will they redouble their effort which means putting in the right effort on the eightfold noble path yeah okay so in fact suffering itself does have an element the point is is do we have to go to the the, the those depths the answer is certainly not that in fact the the better you can see dukkha a little bit of dukkha then the better it is to get out of it okay so that's one of the words but there's many words in fact the, the ones that are most obvious is words like monk and nun because in buddhism there are no monks if you look at what a christian monk does he takes vows buddhist monks don't take vows what they do is is that they take training precepts there's a difference okay and also if a, a monk or uh, leaves Christianity is generally excommunicated to where uh, the bhikkhus uh, robing and disrobing is almost like a revolving door that is quite common for men to become a monk stop doing that because they've got a family situation when the family situation is over they come back and be a monk again right and so there's many many differences that are not understood well in the west because we're using the whole long language for it we're we're painting the monks uh the, the the bhikkhus as monks and expecting them to behave like monks okay devout and that sort of thing rather than hilarious yeah and isn't there like a lot of that um happens in buddhism too the the jesus will save me but just for the buddha instead like the buddha is going to save me like his supreme awakening is going to like is there some of that precisely so yes there is a lot of that because uh there has been a lot of hindu influence on buddhism now how that happens is obviously uh it happened in the time of the buddha that when people came to the Buddha, they came to him with their own belief systems. The question is, can the student drop his belief system or is he going to carry it with him to prevent him from clearly understanding what the Buddha was teaching? And then if that guy goes off um, uh, as a teacher, he's going to be spreading the actual Dhamma heavily mixed in with his own bullshit century after century after century and then it's hard to find the original teachings of the buddha because it's been mixed in with so many beliefs or confirmation biases that so many students over many centuries have brought to it and i think that that happened big time in the fourth fifth century a.d about 450 a.d is when the Vasudhimaga was written and that that is clearly a Buddhist book, but it's also clearly full of bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So, like, would you consider? That's funny. 
Would you consider <laughs> bullshit the stuff that kind of gets off track of the four noble truths? Like, it doesn't have to do with uh, the origin of suffering and the cessation of suffering. And, and I would like, go so far as to say that anything that anybody makes important, uh, when people care about things, even though they know nothing about it, they care about it. In other words, most Christians really don't know anything about Jesus. What they know is their own bullshit about Jesus has been given to them by preachers. Right. Okay. Odd infinitum all the way back in time. Okay. Um, and, and so uh, when we go to um, read the suttas, now we recognize that there's two issues in there. One is bad translations, and number two, there has been bullshit intentionally added. It was intentionally added. Though uh, there's kind of, um, actually, I did have more than one conversation directly with Bhikkhu Buddhadasa on this topic of Buddhaghosa as well as on the topic of Jesus where he took different positions than I did, and I came away from it with slightly different positions than he took, but I do notice that, okay? So with Jesus, the point is, is that both of us agreed that Jesus had some really profound things to say. Right. They got messed up and muddied up by uh, Paul, who really changed things around, and then it got stomped really hard by Constantine. Mm. Okay, so Christianity is not about Jesus, it's about Paul and Constantine. And the te real teachings of Jesus has been more or less lost, ere how noble those teachings are. And a good example in Western uh, situation now is, is that Christianity is 100% solid racist. Without a doubt, Western, especially American Christianity, evangelical, they all go to the Republican Party in a totally racist, hateful way. They're against gays. They're against blacks. They're against women. They're against abortion. And Jesus, in his noble teaching, says to take care of the poor, to take care of the strangers. Okay? And so that's where Christianity kind of stuff has gone wrong. But they think that the teachings of, by being a Christian, you're already saved, and therefore it's okay for you to go around screwing up everybody else's life to make them follow the rules that you don't follow yourself. That's what Christianity has become. So, back to the teaching of the Buddha. Yes, there is a lot of stuff that's mixed with it. So let's go then to Buddha Gosa, because we started with that, and that is, is that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's position was different. Just like with Jesus, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's position was is that he could have come up with that wisdom on his own. My position was, no, Buddhism spread to the West, and Jesus learned that, that he did not uh, invent it on his own. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa makes the point clearly that the Dhamma is available to anyone who will wake up, that even the Buddha said that it's an old path that he just found that it was already there in existence. There's many examples of people who come across this wisdom without him. 
you could go so far as to say, what about Lao Tzu? Because Lao Tzu is full of wisdom, and not only is it full of wisdom, it sounds oh so Buddhist. <laughs> Much more Buddhist than uh, Jesus. Right. So definitely. with so with Bhikkhu Buddha Gosa, the question is, is that uh, there is a lot of really strongly wrong information in the Vasudhimaga. But there is also strong evidence of deep research into the Dhamma. So the question is, was Bhikkhu Buddhaghosa a wise fool who was just being selective, or was he intentionally deceptive? My position was is that he knew what he was doing, and he was intentionally deceptive. He intentionally misled, and Bhikkhu Buddhaghosa just sees him as a fool. Why do you think that that is? Why do you think he would intentionally do that? Well, we've got some evidence of that, uh, other writings. Uh, and also within the Vasudhimaka, there's places where he will go right through the sutta down to one point. And then it says, therefore, and now what he comes up with is not what's in the sutta. So there's a place where he goes down to the point of a sutta, and then he makes his point rather than continuing to follow with that one particular sutta. So that's the uh, the two examples, okay, as well as a whole lot of stuff that's in there that that didn't um, exist in the time of the Buddha. But it's clear that the Vasudhimaga was based in its structure on sutta number 24 in the Majjhima Nikaya, okay, which is the, uh, the, the relay chariot race where it has um, seven steps and so the Vasudhimaga follows those seven steps, okay? But in the, in the following of those seven steps, he makes a mockery of Sila. He doesn't know what it's about. He makes a whole bunch of rules. It gets really Christian, in fact. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then the next part, uh, in the Samadhi, he gets really, really magical. It's right. like he takes the teachings of the Buddha and then presses them as far into stupidity as he can take it. So, overdoing everything. So what I'm wondering is like, what's the motive? Is it like, because oh, you want to hide the motive them? was is that he was born Brahman. He stayed Brahman. He went to Sri Lanka to do this literature. And then he went back to uh, his area, uh, probably um, uh, in uh, Rajgiri, Varanasi, that neighborhood. Uh, and that the rationale for his motivation was is that Buddhism in his home area was taking over and the Brahmins were beginning to starve because they couldn't do cemetery work like uh, uh, having funerals in order to gain great pieces of land. Okay. That the Brahmins only wanted to do the, the, the big heavy duty rituals for the wealthy people so that they could take their land. They still do that in Varanasi. Okay, that at one so. time before the Buddha, uh, Buddhist time, the Brahmins uh, had all of the land. Because enough people had died that they just kept collecting land, which meant everybody worked for the Brahmins were serfs. So you so, had Brahmins and serfs. Go ahead. So that would be greed then, right? So yes. 
you wouldn't consider him a noble because he, that would be. I would consider him a villain. Uh, I would consider uh, him the kind of dude that needs to be dug up just to be hung in effigy again. Uh, okay. <laughs> I would consider Buddha Gosa the, the absolute uh, antithesis of the Buddha. Okay. That I don't give him the credit that he's just stupid. That he uh, just missed the point of the teaching of the Buddha. I think that he really did understand the teaching of the Buddha and hated it because it prevented his family and his people from making a living. Right. So, yeah, it's kind of like if you're ruling over a ton of people, like ignorance is your friend type of thing. So, like, mm -hmm. that's kind of true in, like, a lot of different places in history. Where, yes, uh, it is. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. In fact, uh, American racism is founded upon that point. That we're white, therefore we're smart, and they are black, therefore they are stupid, and they need to be treated like animals. Okay, that's, that's part of that mentality. Uh, and that mentality still exists in think, every country yeah. and every part of the world. Oh, I'm better than they are because they're different than I am. And I have a right then to harm them intentionally. I think you had a lot more exposure to racism than I did because I grew up in California, like in, and I'm not very old. So things are kind of different. Like I, I didn't really encounter like very many racist people except for on the internet. Like I know there's racist people out there, but like, I don't like see them on a day to day, at least not outwardly racist in the sense mm -hmm. that you wouldn't be able to survive in California. Um, if you were um, racist, like you would get fired from your job and everything like that. Um, right. There, yeah. In some case, in some ways and in some cases, I can see that racism is even more prevalent now than it was in the 1950s. Even though in the 1950s, you had separate washrooms, you had separate water fountains. Now, nobody's got any water fountains. When's the last time that you saw a water fountain in uh, uh, a department store? You probably don't even know what a water fountain is. There used to be electric cooling machines that would cool water and keep I a little thing of it. And you yep, could turn the those. valve and drink out of it. Yeah, we still have those. <laughs> I drink out of them all the time. They're at the, like, they're at the gym. They're at the grocery store. Well, actually, uh, during COVID, a lot of them got shut off. Um, but there's still some out there like that work for sure. Mm -hmm. In yeah. in the old South, they were all over the place. Yeah. There were more bathrooms in the old South than there are today. Why? Because there you had four bathrooms. Uh, instead of two had four bathrooms so let's get back then to the point about the fact that the that the suttas are problematic in the form that you will find them that you have to really dig into the suttas beyond both the bad translations in the words themselves as well as the bad mentality of the people who did the translations. 
you could go so far as to say then that the original problems with the Vasudhimaga exist now in the translations of the suttas. Is number one, no knowledge of what the data means, and number two, no knowledge of how to put that into a language that people understand. And yet in one of the suttas, number 139, the Buddha talks about how to teach the Dhamma and that one of the points that he made is, is that you've got to teach it in the language that the student understands. Right. That we can't uh, teach it. So that's why I teach it the way that I do is because if I stay just within the boundaries of the teachings of the Buddha in the original context, Westerners won't understand. We have to get bring bring in some pretty outrageous um, modern examples. Mm. Okay, uh, and the example that I was just giving you before was about the difference between dukkha as suffering versus dukkha as just dissatisfaction. Right. But yeah. uh, dukkha can be completely um, uh, suffering. Because some people are really, really slow to wake up. They've got to really, really hurt before they're willing to make a change. And the question is, can you see just enough dukkha in order to see that that's dissatisfying? Let's get ourselves into a state of satisfaction. Yeah, it almost seems like there's something more profound about, like, dissatisfaction and experiencing that little like when it goes away and there's relief uh it's more profound than being like suffering really bad and then getting relief from it because you see you see like the roots of it more like you see the Mm -hmm. root of the problem rather than a few like i'm saved from drowning so like yeah (laughs) (laughs) okay let's use the example then of hot potato you probably heard you could also use a hot rock okay but the idea of the hot potato is is that once you recognize that it's hot you want to drop it or give it to someone else okay so the degree of the hotness can you feel just the warmth of it and say okay this is hot i'll put it down or do you have to burn your hand first holding it, grabbing it, clinging to it until it burns your hand. Okay, so another way of saying it is, is that if you care for something, but because you care only a little bit, you can see the disadvantage. And so because of the disadvantage, you can drop your caring. But if you care a lot, if you care a whole lot about something, then it's going to have to burn you really bad before you're willing to drop it and that burning really bad in order to drop it that's the dukkha this is in fact what i'm talking about right now i'm actually teaching paticca samupada yeah that that clinging that we do gets us into a lot of trouble so the less clinging we do the less dissatisfaction we have to put up with and we when we stop caring altogether no matter what happens if i don't care then it's not going to give me dissatisfaction. It's only when I care about something that I don't get my way, I don't get what I want, or I have to put up with something I don't want to put up with. And I care about that. That caring is what makes it 
um, better say, changes it actually from dissatisfaction into actual suffering. That we actually do suffer only because we hang on to that hot potato or hot rock, even as it's burning our flesh. We won't let it go. I need this potato. <laughs> okay. So if we understand it like that, there's a key that can be used. And that key then is Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was my key to the suttas and my understanding of the suttas. That in fact, when I was a student of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa, when he was alive, I marveled at his knowledge of the suttas, wondering would I ever come up to that level. Then he died. Mm-hmm. And then five years later or so, uh, translation started showing up uh, in English. Um, that there had been the Polytech Society's translations for, you know, since the 1940s or 1930s or something like that. But the Polytech Society only sold the whole Tripitaka as one great big collection. You either bought all of it for, say, $2,000, or you didn't buy any of it. And so that greatly limited the, uh, uh, the availability um, and that in Western uh, Watts, they, the Watt then will buy a Vasudhimaga, uh, not a Vasudhimaga, a Tripitaka uh, from the Polytech Society simply because they can get the whole thing so easily. But most of us start off with the Majjhima Nikaya that's done by Bhikkhu Buddha, excuse me, Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, the 1995, I think, translation. Maybe it's yeah. 1997, something like that was when that book finally came out. Okay, so the first advice that I have to you then is make sure that you understand Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. And there's a whole number of books that we can talk about there. Uh, They're easily found on the internet by just uh, 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 Googling Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa or BIA, which is the uh, Buddha Dasa Itapanyo Archives. And so there's a number of books that are in Spanish, Chinese, some in French, but the vast majority of them are translated into uh, into English. And what we're talking about here is translations of his Thai. He spoke in Thai mostly. He spoke a little bit of English, um, but then that Thai. And so, um, in fact, I think you do know that there's recently been a new book published called The Eye of the Dhamma. You and I have talked yeah, about that. Talked about okay, that. so that's it. That's a good place to start. Another good place to start is the ABCs of Buddhism. Yeah, but I was hoping you'd give me some suttas because I, I kind of want to just go into the canon. I know I okay. like I, I want to read it for myself. Yes, I don't want okay. to build, you know, so like that's why I talked to Okay, so let's go in that direction, but I do want to make the point that the best place to understand the suttas, <laughs> I assumed you dropped your phone. Yeah, I dropped my phone. One second here. Yeah. Uh, All right, I do appreciate what you're saying, but I want to make sure just in general for people that the best way to understand the suttas is by understanding the teachings of Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa. 
That way we don't get confused when we read it, because if we read it in the sutta and we're confused by it, then we have a backup source of what Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa taught. Okay, there it goes. Sorry. Okay, there it goes. All right. So now that we've gotten that out of the way, that we do have an assistant, we do have a back door into the suttas. Okay. Because a lot of the stuff that Bhikkhu Buddha taught, he taught through the suttas. That he'd actually done his own translations, and and the translations that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had have become quite common in Thai language. Oh, really? Now I think there's actually four different translations of the entire Tripitaka, or three translations plus an incomplete one, the one that Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa had done. So wow. the Thai people have ready access, but he was proving that some of the translations that had been done previously were not correct. Mm. That there was a lot of research done because of him. So some of the statements that he made really made him start to look and think and, and work hard to figure out. And he was always right. Okay, one of the statements that was made was is that the the Buddha only taught one form of meditation. He only taught one, and he taught that in conjunction with the Eightfold Noble Path. And that right. one kind of meditation they taught was Anapanasati, and there is, in fact, an Anapanasati Sutta. So that's the first yeah. one that you want to write down, the Anapanasati Sutta, which yeah, is read, 18. Um, yeah. Okay. And that it fits in directly and closely with the uh, the second one, which would be the Great Forty, which was number 117 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Those two suttas need to be read together. Okay. Okay. There is a third sutta that actually does come third, not first. That is the Satipatthana Sutta, which is number 10 in the Majjhima Nikaya. Okay. Burmese go for the Satipatthana, and because of that, they almost forget about the Eightfold Noble Path, which means they actually forget about the entire teachings of the Buddha. Okay, so we don't put the uh, Satipatthana first. We put it where it belongs. Uh, when we know that there's only one kind of meditation, then in the, uh, in the Satipatthana Sutta, we can see that all of the meditations that are listed as meditations were the failures that Buddha did in his training of students. That in the very beginning, he would send them to the charnel ground. Go look at some corpses. Get a big load of what's going to be happening to you very soon. Okay. And that, in fact, part of the robe is designed around the, uh, the wrapping cloth uh, that was done for the bodies. Oh, that reminds me of the shroud. Okay, it comes in thin strips of about four inches wide and are long pieces. And so the monks would take those shrouds as as an individual part of the robe that they were making. So the Buddha did not teach the charnel ground meditations. He stopped doing that but he continued to teach Anapanasati. Also, the Buddha did not teach, for instance, um, metta meditation, but that was something that was practiced by um, people before the time of the Buddha, and many students who came to the Buddha to become monks 
still practice metta kind of meditation and the Buddha um, taught them the Anapanasati Sutta. He said there are those who are practicing metta, karuna. There are those who are practicing mudita and upeka. But Anapanasati, well practiced, has great benefits. So he's actually saying in a way that their practice of uh, metta is not of great benefit. But Anapanasati is of great benefit. Yeah, so like I got, so I think I learned the Dhamma in a more traditional way in the sense that I learned how to practice by you telling me how to practice. So how to gladden the mind and uh, uh, cultivate, like uh, collect on the wholesome and purify mm -hmm. the mind and breathe and uh, enjoy the breath and start to enjoy life and make a habit out of enjoying life and make a habit mm -hmm. out of satisfaction. And I found this practice to be sufficient. Um, so of great fruit, great benefit of great benefit. And because of that, uh, I find like that made me more interested in the suttas rather mm -hmm. than the other way around. Um, so like, mm -hmm. I, I think, uh, reading the suttas is like, from that perspective of, of correct practice is a much more enjoyable experience. And also it gives me like, if I want to like try to sound more official or like <laughs> more legitimate, it's like citing your source almost. So it's cool to have mm -hmm. like a sutta to like back up a point you're trying to make about stuff or about dissatisfaction. You know that from me. I do that on a regular <laughs> basis, okay? Yeah. That I've got backup. When people even talk to me about what is my teaching or my method, I keep telling them, I don't have one. Uh. I don't have one. What I've got is the suttas, and that goes through the lineage from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa back to Buddha Vosajarn, back to Wechai, all the way back to the Buddha. Okay, the lineage is there, and that's why lineage is so important, and Westerners don't have much of anything about lineage. They don't know anything about lineage, which is uh, twofold. One is the, uh, the information about how to practice and the practice of it, and then the second part is the inspiration. You've got to be around a noble monk to know what noble nobility is. Otherwise, it's just an idea in people's minds. Okay, so the word arahide is meaningless except for what the student makes up. Right. Right? But when you're around them and you understand what kind of lifestyle that they live, and you see the joy that they have, and the enthusiasm that they have, and also the deep knowledge that they have of the Dhamma. That's what's inspirational. That's actually the biggest job. My job is to inspire students to practice, because many of them already have a lot of knowledge about it. The, the, the knowledge is spotty. In fact, the one that you mentioned was the gladdening of the mind or the changing the mind from unwholesome. That's what the Mahasi and the Vajrayana and the Zen are all missing. Oh, yeah, I was get I was kind of uh, on the path, if we want to talk about it that way, 
in the sense of the spiritual quest or the spiritual journey before I came to the Dhamma or mm-hmm. uh, to the teachings of the Buddha, uh, practicing Advaita. So doing, oh, like just accepting it, like this is already perfect. And it's like, if you don't understand that you're thinking, you're talking yourself into suffering or you don't understand that you're talking yourself into feeling bad mm-hmm. then and you think that's just oh that's just the way it is like it's going to keep on being more of the same so <laughs> mm-hmm. there is that like the right effort that's there's no way to uh come out of uh, your own delusions and stuff like that unless you actually mm-hmm. practice doing that but uh yeah okay there is a kind of a built-in catch-22 in the sense that it's a two-step process, and the two-step process is, one, getting the mind fit for work, and then the second is doing the work. So you could actually see that uh, the Anapanasati Sutta is broken into those two groups with uh, the body, the feelings, and the mind, is getting the mind fit for work. And then the Dhamma the end of it, is actually what we need to look at or understand with a mind that's fit for understanding. Otherwise, the mind's going to be full of confirmation bias. And so yeah. we have to actually gladden the mind, brighten it up, getting it in fit for work. An example of that is the first grader who is learning their numbers, or maybe the second grader who is learning arithmetic, if she is really interested and really curious about it and make it fun, then that child will learn arithmetic much better than if they hate it. They don't know what it is, and it's frustrating to them. So the second grade teacher, her job is to inspire her kids to really like arithmetic. And if she's successful, she's going to have people who understand logic and then can understand the teaching of the Buddha. But if the kids don't like arithmetic, and many of them don't, and the reason they don't like it is because they were told to do it. Sit down and do your homework, learn your ABCs. And that's almost a guarantee that they're not going to like learning to read. It's because they don't like it, and they're told to do it. But if the teacher can make, by reading stories to the students and making that a lot of fun, then the students will want to have that fun on their own, and then they're curious and interested. So that curiosity, that interest, is actually a major part of the, uh, the path that the Buddha lays out. That in fact, when someone becomes completely, completely curious, interested, they've got the Dhamma on their mind all the time, and they're enthusiastic and eager for the Dhamma, which is completely different than being devoted to the Dhamma. Devotion means that you've got some authority that you're sucking up to. Eager means that you've got it right here in your hands, you're about to get it. So the difference between devotion and eagerness. And so the the Buddha talks about eagerness, about enthusiasm. And on top of that is complete delight. 
to become completely delighted with the, the Dhamma is like now the spark has gone into the kindling and then the delight is when the bonfire is roaring. Okay, these are the stages of Sotapan. First, we get really, really interested with the idea that I can do this. Then we begin to get beyond a shadow of a doubt. I know that this is correct. Then we begin to practice in a way uh, of, of being really nurturing to ourselves in the sense that we're really to see the wrongdoing because we want out of it. And as we are then making, that's a major hurdle because most of us are told, oh, you're not supposed to make mistakes. Therefore, if you do make a mistake, you're a bad person. Yeah. But with the Dhamma eye, using that word again, that term again, with the Dhamma eye, you can see, oh, I want to see the dukkha easily so I can avoid it easily. Right. Right. I do want to see my wrongdoing so I can set it right. Yeah. That's a big difference. That's a big difference is when we're willing to nurture our own bad behavior rather than criticizing ourselves for our bad behavior because it doesn't meet up to the rules. Yeah. Okay. So I've actually mentioned all seven of them there, and they are in a sutta number 48. Is it Majjhima Nikaya? Yes, number 48 in the Majjhima Nikaya. If I I go for a sutta that's outside the Majjhima Nikaya, I'll make a point of it. Okay, got it. Okay. But the Majjhima Nikaya was put together within the first year after the Buddha's death. It had a lot to do with Ananda, but there's a lot of suttas in there that was the accumulation of what the Buddha's life was like that was compiled after he died, as opposed to the Dinganakaya, which was done in the time of Asok, about 150 to 200 years after the time of the Buddha. And that document was written in order to entice Brahmins out of their Brahmanism into Buddhism. Mm. And so there's a lot of magical stuff in the Dinga Nikaya, but there's quite a lot of uh, magical stuff in the Majjhima Nikaya also in the following way. As the students come to the Buddha, believing, clinging to, caring about all the teachings that they've had before, and so the Buddha has to kind of join them in that to pace them with it. And then he can lead them out of those beliefs. One of the big dangers then with Western Buddhism and the translations that it has is many people will go around saying, oh, the Buddha agrees with these people. He's even talking to them in their own language. That means that the Buddha must believe this stuff himself. Yeah. Where that's not the case. And in fact, the Kosambian Sutta, or no, the Kasambian is 48, the, uh, uh, the Kasala Sutta, which is actually number 65 and 66 in the uh, threes of the Anguttara Nikaya. And people will, will read that and completely miss the point because of one two-letter word, the word if. If that stuff exists and you practice correctly and have a good heart, then after you're reborn, you will be reborn in a good place. Ah. But then the next paragraph or the next sentence is, but if you 
if there is no rebirth, no reincarnation, still you get the benefits of correct practice in this very life. Right. Okay, so people will take that and, and think that all that means that the Buddha is teaching rebirth. No, the Buddha is not teaching rebirth. He only taught one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha uh, Naroda, right here, right now. Uh, okay, so that's another sutta to look at, and that's uh, Anguttara number three, sutta number 65 and 66. Uh, okay, so uh, there's a lot of that in there. Uh, there is a sutta number 20, and Sutta of the Majjhima where a lot of rebirthers go to prove rebirth is correct. And they do that in English language because of the bad translations, because the translators themselves understood it in a certain way. But the very last part of that Sutta turns the whole thing upside down logically. By saying the Buddha uh, having the words, therefore, do not get reborn. <laughs> okay, don't do it. <laughs> don't get reborn. Well, most of the teachings about rebirth and reincarnation is you've got no choice in it. Right. But the Buddha is making the point that, yes, you do have a choice. Right now, don't get reborn. Don't go into your dukkha. Don't go into suffering. Right now. And so this is the problem with Western translations is, is that the translators didn't really understand the teaching of the Buddha is only teaching one thing, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. So the step two, or the two-step operation is one, we've got to get the mind cleaned out in order to see clearly. The problem, though, or the catch-22 is, is that if people are still clinging to things, then they won't practice correctly. If people believe in rebirth and reincarnation, one of the uh, answers is that, therefore, I can go ahead and, and suffer a little bit now, and in my next life, I'll have a better chance to practice. And that's where most Asians are. Uh, but the whole point of those kinds of teachings is, is that you are not in control of your own life, that you are subject to some comma machine, that every action you take is either good or bad, and that mounts up, and then the comma machine is going to, after you're dead for 300 years, is going to dig you up just to kick your ass. Right. That's the kind of rebirth belief that people have, which means then that they don't get the spark. They can't see the dukkha. And they're willing to put up with a little bit of dukkha and not practice. Right. That's so, why it's possible then for people to go into real suffering and then they'll start to practice correctly. But this little bit of dukkha is okay. I'll put up with it. I'll keep working my job. I'll keep... Uh, uh, living with a woman who hates my guts, I'll still continue to do what I'm told to do and get along because I can tolerate it, right? Because yeah. next time, because I'm giving to the church, next time I'll have a better opportunity to practice. I won't have to work so hard. I won't have a, a, a devil of a wife, et cetera, like that. Yeah. 
Okay, so this is the reason why so few people practice correctly is because they are caring about the future and not recognizing that you don't have any future. All you've got is right now. It's been a long right now, but that's all you've got. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of like a superstition. Like a super it's superstition, exactly. Yeah. If Okay, so here's a clear example of that. If you're a superstitious and you think that house down the street is a haunted house, then you're not going to be readily going into that house and expecting to find out actually what's there because of your fear is going to keep you out of investigating what's really there. There may be, uh, you know, uh, a basement that's full of gold and you're not going to find yeah. it because you're afraid that that house is haunted. Superstition. And you might talk yourself into hearing things. You might be, oh, there's, I heard you, confirmation bias. Now you really believe in that ha house is haunted because that's mm -hmm. how you view Because everybody so, hears that the house is haunted. Everybody in the neighborhood believes the house is haunted. And so yeah. when they hear the wind blow through the trees, yeah. they hear the howling and they think that it's the spooks that live in the house. Yeah. When in fact, all they're hearing is just the wind. Yeah. Right. Uh, and that's really strongly built into our culture. Superstition would be the primary training tool that we give our kids. If you don't do what you're told, you're going to get your ass whooped. Yeah. Or Santa Claus. If you're not a good boy, you're going to get cold. <laughs> uh -huh. Okay. So. That's the problem. We have to put down our superstitions so that we can actually practice seeing what's there clearly. And by doing that over and over again, gladdening the mind, brightening the mind, looking at what's going on and checking it out and getting ourselves into that really, really comfortable, stable place where the, the body is um, uh, at rest. Thank the feelings you. are at rest. The mind is at rest. Only then can you see clearly. I often use the example of a camera. You've seen many, many places. Uh, uh, one of them that's kind of funny is, is that an avalanche is rolling right down the hill. And the person is so interested in getting a video recording of that avalanche that, that by the time they finally wake up that the avalanche is coming right here. And it's yeah. going to be here really, really soon. And yeah. then they drop the camera yeah. because they're running or they hold the camera in their hand, but they start running. Now, while that camera is moving, we can't see the avalanche anymore Yeah, because the guy has stopped because of his fear. The, the camera's gotten really shaky because his whole stability is shaky now. No more stability. Okay, yeah. so... If we believe in avalanches, then we're going to be constantly running from avalanches and we can't see them clearly. Avalanches of Dukkha. The avalanche of Dukkha, whatever's rolling down the hill at you. <laughs> you got to know it well enough to be able to check it, find out where it's going so that you can get out of its way. Right. So would you say the noble understanding of karma is that um, we experience the immediate result of, for instance, our thinking 
like if we're like thinking angry thoughts, we're going to feel immediate uh, angry feelings. We're going angry to feel the satisfied, right? And then, and then the body is in an unsatisfactory the state. Body tense, yeah. Right, the body is all tensed up, our yeah. neck is tied, we may get yeah. ourselves, uh, they talk about being flushed with uh, uh, with blood and all of that. Because the blood is there in anger and, and fear, is in a fight or flight mode. Yeah. Okay, anger is the fighting and the fear is the flight. And we always have a choice and in our society, we generally are trained superstitiously trained that it's better to fight than to run, right? But both of them have a quality of the body is now all set up for fight or flight. It's not set up for wise examination. So we have to come to a place where we are free from fear and anger. We have to get ourselves into a safe, comfortable, secure environment so that we become satisfied with what is, and then we can expect what is directly rather than having our confirmation bias pollute our understanding. Okay, so uh, in the next sutta that I'll mention is the Sabha Asava Sutta, number two in the Majjhima Nikaya. The Saba Asapa means all of the taints. Now, the word Asaba and the word um, Kilesa are interrelated. But in fact, right there in that sutta, it, can, it starts talking about um, Asaba. It continues to talk about Asaba, but they're actually talking about Kilesa. Now, the distinction between uh, Kilesa in the Pali and Asaba is, is that the kalesa is actually like a rope or a bondage, like your hands are tied, okay? The word asava means canker, outflow, pus pocket, blackhead, those kind of things, perhaps a cyst. Okay. Okay, the, uh, but they you can see that they have this, the similar quality to them. So one is your hands are tied. Right, and you're, you're tied up, you're bound up. Okay, and what and the other one is, up? and the other one is more of a canker or a pus pocket or a boil or something like that. That's what the, the word asapa means. What, it means an outflow. What's the, what connects those two things? How are they similar? Um, the, what connects those two things is, is that we're using human language of things that do exist to point to things that cannot be properly described. Just like the Tao, it, the Tao that can be spoken is not the Tao. That we can right. only use language to point to things. We can't really directly say it because it's, there's no language for it. Ah, uh, okay, okay, I get, I, I think I okay. get it. Yeah. Okay, uh, and uh, here's an example of how that works. Whenever we are trying to talk with our friends about how we feel, we always use superlatives. Right. 
to prove how bad we feel, where in fact we may yeah. feel just a tiny little bit bad, but we use great yeah. big language. Yeah. Which and is expletives. And so and instead of saying the bank ripped me off, we have to say that goddamn bank ripped me off, you know, yeah. okay. <laughs> right? But it's not a really big deal until we try to express it. And then we have to express it in great big ways Okay, so that's the problem, that uh, cankers and asava are great big things that's pointing to little things that are in the mind. Yeah. Okay. One, thing I, one thing I find funny is that when we use the expletive, sometimes when we're really happy, we say, sometimes we say, hell yeah. <laughs> uh -huh. I think that's kind of funny because uh, it's kind of uh, oxymoronic, but... Uh, Anyways, I, I know, I know. Uh, <laughs> we also use the word like get the hell out of Dodge or get the hell out of here. Yeah. And the funny part about it is, is that the hell is in the mind. Yeah. <laughs> getting, getting the hell out of Dodge means I'm taking my hell out of Dodge. <laughs> yeah. The hell in my own mind when I get out of Dodge. Or yeah. the hell out. All right. So within this context of the, the name of the sutta is the uh, Saba Asaba Sutta. And yet the first uh, canker to be gotten rid of is knowledge. The Buddha was big on the distinction between knowledge and deliverance or knowledge and freedom. An example of that is, is that the guy can only break out of the prison if he knows how to break out of the prison. And there's been sometimes some really spectacular uh, escapes, prison. Uh, one of the Mexican cartels was able to escape from prison three times. What was his name? El Chapo? Uh, uh, yeah. It was yeah, that big, yeah. ugly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. So anyway, that's the whole thing is the knowledge comes first and then the deliverance. So it's actually then in this state is, is that we have to get stability so that we can see clearly and gain the knowledge so that we can figure out what to do to get out of this. Hmm. Okay. And that the, uh, the way that this is normally understood then is, is that that stability is the first jhana. And yeah. in the first jhana, then you can inspect what needs to be inspected and when we are inspecting uh, some things, that actually then becomes the definition of those higher jhanas. For instance, when you're really inspecting yeah. sukha, then by inspecting sukha in a stable way, that's the third jhana is to be able to really see how nice and comfortable and easy we feel. To where the second jhana is the pity, which means we're actually now paying close attention to how good we feel. How marvelous this is. But that great big yeehaw melts then into just easy satisfaction. Yeah, so it's kind of like a platter of different like food items. You could say that first jhana is like the platter and it has the PT and the sukha. And you can take the sukha and like take a bite out of it and really mm -hmm. taste what sukha is like. And like, so you by investigating the taste of it, like you experience it, um, like it, you experience it more uh, prominently in your experience than Precisely the other so. thing, even though 
it's all on the platter. <laughs> okay. So going back then to the Saba Asaba Sutta, the first part of the Sutta, the, uh, let us say, uh, in Bhikkhu Bodhi's translation, he's got verse numbers that are not normally in the Pali. And so just for reference, it's, suit, it's, it's um, verse number 11 is the key. But the first 10 are about what is unwise attention and what is wise attention. And unwise attention is such that when we have unwise attention, then uh, superstitions and belief systems get built up. We're paying attention to the wrong thing, okay? And uh, that, in fact, many of the people who start with Buddhism are paying attention to the wrong thing, which is specifically stated here in the sutta in the sense of I've got to figure out who I am. Right. The Buddha talks about that as unwise attention. Who was I in the past, having past memories of the things that I have done? And then what will I be in the future? How do I get from where I am now into the future? And what is it that's me right now? The Buddha refers to all of this as unwise attention, and it gives rise to beliefs that he calls a thicket of views. Okay, so one wise attention is the attention such that you do not gain anything from it. But in fact, you kind of hurt yourself. And so trying to figure out what I am is also, or what I was or what I will be, that's actually the belief in rebirth and reincarnation. So it's unwise attention. So long as people are paying unwise attention, they're not going to make any progress with Anapanasati because they're missing the point, okay? And then it comes to verse 11 where it says, and what is wise attention? And then quoting, it says, this is dukkha. This is the cause of dukkha. This is what the end of dukkha is like, and this is the path that takes us there. In other words, wise attention is to pay attention to the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths. That's wise attention. And then the sutra says in the next uh, sentence, wise then attention leads to three fetters broken. Okay, so the asava, the, uh, the cankers, is the unwise attention. Once we bring wise attention and wise focus to the Eightfold Noble Path, the Four Noble Truths, really experience what it's like to be at peace, uh, at stillness, etc. Uh, that part then leads to the removal of the first three fetters. What are the first three fetters? The first one, pers go ahead, you know them. Personality view. Personality view. Who am I? So right. long as you're trying to figure out who am I, you'll miss the point. The point is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Once you get into right. the Dukkha Naroda, now you can recognize what I was or what I thought I was. I recognize now 
I'm merely a moving target, that who I am cannot be defined. There's no way to define it. And yet many people get really hung up on trying to figure out who they are, what they will be, either in the next particular short time future or in the long future, or what was I deep in the past, and how does that deep past affect who I am now, right? And all of that is unwise attention, me, 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 me. But when we break that fetter, that means now that we have uh, the ability to see clearly that I am not whatever it was that I thought I was. Whatever it was that I thought I was, I'm not that. I'm not sure of what I am because I am a moving target. (laughs) And so I'm not any of those things. This is what we mean then by anatta, that things are changing. The second fetter is the fetter of silabhata paramasa, are all of the rites, rules, rituals, shoulds, the rules, the standards that we carry that keep creating the self in the sense of, oh, you should go on a diet. Then me goes on the diet and fails at the diet. And so the rules are you should be successful on the diet and you are a failure, right? So there's where we are. I'm on a diet, number one. And number two, I'm a failure at the diet. That's all selfishness. So in fact, the self is created by the standards that we keep. So we have to break the standards, start lowering the bar so that we become successful more often. (laughs) Start nurturing and stop having such a high bar, the standard that we've got to make. Yeah, just lower the bar. (laughs) Yeah, just lower the bar. Stop having a bar, in fact. (laughs) Yeah, just just accept yourself as who you are. You're okay. All the bar all the warts, all of the cankers, everything is okay because calling them warts and farts and and cankers is a set of rules that we have been gathering up from our childhood. So the third fetter then that's broken is the doubt about who I am. We're no longer concerned with who I am, but we're also got something else, and that is by understanding the Eightfold Noble Path and its relationship to Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda and Four Noble Truths by understanding that, completely understanding that, then all the doubt about what is and is not the path. We know the path. We've got it. There's no more doubt about it. And when these three things come together, that's actually step three in the uh, uh, seven-step point of sutta number 48 so you can see that number two and number 48 and also number 24 bind directly together only for the one who already has their mind fit for work and when the mind is fit for work that means that we're paying wise attention to this is dukkha this is the cause of dukkha this is the end of dukkha and this is the path that leads to the end of dukkha, and that's what then brings us to that point of, without a doubt, I know what I can do now to come out of suffering. I've got it wired now, okay? That's beyond a shadow of a doubt that I know what is the path and what is not the path. 
that's a major point in one's life when we know which direction that we've got to go in that there's no more doubts in our mind about what to do and what is it that we got to do is we've got to look <laughs> we got to see clearly and we keep doing that okay so now in um uh in kind of a, a retrospect we have covered now some of the most important suttas there Number 118, number 117, number 10, number 24, number 48, and number 2. That's six suttas. Those six suttas together will give you all of the liberation that you need. Everything else is candy. Actually, a lot of the suttas in there are trying to get people out of their superstitions into their, um, let us say, enthusiasm for practice. But the real wisdom is understanding completely the Eightfold Noble Path uh. and how to practice correctly so that then we can get rid of the higher fetters, the fetter of ill will and anger, and then the fetter of greed. The Sotapan uh. still has anger. He still has frustrations. But yeah. he knows when they're there, he can right. see them. And as he sees them, he can put them down. So we then develop the habit of not having any desire. We have the habit of not having, in other words, we stop caring about things. And when you don't give a flying flip anymore, that's all you need is just stop caring about stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> and just enjoy. Hey, things are good enough right now. No place to yeah. go and nothing to do. Yeah. Okay. So go for that list. We've given a list of six. There's certainly some others, but number two, number 24, and number 48 is uh, with wisdom. I got so to number seven, 117 and 118 is how to get the stability so that we can see clearly. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, that was beautiful. That was great. That was good to listen to. Um, it was a good refresher, you know, like yeah. some of these things like it's it's, you know, it doesn't really get old. Like I ex I learned it and I see it and I enjoy it and I delight in it. And just hearing it again is like it's still entertaining. <laughs> It is. It's great. It's the best entertainment I know of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in fact, that's actually step five of the seven steps in Sutta number 48. And that is uh, the example of it is a cow who once she has a calf, even though she eats her grass and lives her life, she's got one eye on that calf all the time. She really cares about that calf and she's keeping an eye on it. Okay. That's right. how we want to look at the Dhamma. Is yeah. yeah, we can go about doing anything through our life, but we've got our mind, we've got our yeah. eye on the Dhamma. How is this Dhamma or what? <laughs> you know? Yeah. Everything is Dhamma. That's the sati. That's like the unremitting sati, right? Unremitting sati is to keep yeah. looking at the fact that this is Dhamma too. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, I've got another call coming in, so let's finish this one. All right, thank you so much. Good seeing you. Okay, All good right. to see you again.
All right, bye-bye. Bye-bye, Scott.